How's it, everybody? Super stoked about this podcast episode. We had a chance to chat with the great Mark Rolfing of NBC and the Golf Channel. He talks about the hopeful shuffling of the golf schedule and how this postponement of play might impact the Century Tournament of Champions at Kapalua in January. As always, you can send any questions or comments to us via Twitter at Kanoa Leahy or at Jordan Helley. We hope you're all staying safe out there and continuing to heed the advice and directives of our medical experts and community leaders. Alrighty, let's go. All right, what's up, Jordan? We got a pretty cool one today. We got Mark Rolfing, the preeminent source on anything golf related. Yeah, Mark's the man. Uh, you know, obviously a Maui guy, the preeminent voice on the game anywhere around, and, and he's always got great insight. And I love how much of an outside-the-box thinker he is. That'll be sort of the, the main event of this particular episode. But we do want to get to some in-the-headlines topics. Trent Dilfer telling the Washington Post that Tua Tonga-Vailoa throws the ball better than Aaron Rodgers and Dan Marino. He added that whichever team gets him in this upcoming NFL draft is getting a Hall of Fame player. Now, we must say that Trent Dilfer did walk back those comments just a little bit. He clarified on Twitter that he throws it as well as Aaron Rodgers and Dan Marino. A bit of a change there. Said that that quote got combined with another one where he said that he does throw it better than Aaron Rodgers did at this stage of their development. So a bit of a clarification there, still extremely high praise, still referred to Tua Tonga-Vailoa as a Hall of Fame player. Uh, how did that hit you? Yeah, you know, and Dilfer's been a guy who has worked with quarterbacks quite extensively since, you know, retiring from the game, even as he sort of dialed back the broadcasting aspect of his career in this current state and a guy who got to see Tua up close and personal, really, at the Elite 11 when Tua was coming out of St. Louis school, when he was coming out of high school, and Dilfer's done a lot of work with high school quarterbacks. So he's seen a lot of guys who have come through, a lot of the elite prospects heading into college over the last, what, five, eight years or so. Uh, and his praise, I remember even going back, you know, about three, four years ago when, when it was the Elite 11 was pretty astronomical when it came to Tua. Uh, and so no surprise to see him levy that kind of praise on Tua at this point, especially it sounds like maybe he's working with him a little bit, maybe he's seeing him a little more up close and personal than a lot of other folks at this point just due to all the quarantine restrictions. Tua's a guy who I think at this point probably it's safe to say that he has a more natural delivery of the football, a more developed delivery of the football than even an Aaron Rodgers. But uh, you think back to those days at Cal when Rodgers was a little more mechanical. That elbow was a little high on his delivery. He changed it a bit after he got to Green Bay and really refined that thing. And now you, you're not going to find anybody who can flick the wrist and spin the football any better than Aaron Rodgers. But it was a work in progress. He knows a thing or two. I, I take Trent Dilfer's word uh, to a pretty high degree of credibility uh, that said, you know, what's interesting about this whole draft process is we've kind of sw seen the pendulum swing back and forth a bit, right? Because of the starvation for sports headlines, we're seeing different kinds of hot takes being given as it pertains to Tua and his status 
as a draft prospect. Uh, in addition to what Trent Dilfer, who has seen him firsthand, says about him, we've also actually heard in the last week or so uh, some comments from various pundits questioning whether or not Tua is as good as people like Trent Dilfer are saying. They're saying, hey, look, let's not forget that this guy is lining up with four future professional wide receivers and is behind one of the best offensive lines in all of college football. And I've actually even heard the term system quarterback be applied to Tua Tonga-Vailoa. And I don't think that's necessarily the idea that the scheme in which he played at Alabama makes him a potential system quarterback. They're just saying he's at Alabama. That program is that good. He's a product of that. It seems uh, to be counter to, I think, most of what we're hearing about Tua Tonga-Vailoa. Alabama has had that kind of talent outside the quarterback position in years past, right? Nick Saban has won national championships with adequate, mediocre, even subpar quarterback play. Maybe even you could qualify. Two is the guy that's taken that offense and that program to a different level. And I think that's where the retort can come from because there's no denying, right? There's no arguing with the fact that he played with multiple NFL receivers, that the talent on offense is as good as you will find in the college game. There's no doubt about that. Heck, even when he was in high school, he played on some star-studded teams. He played on some of the best teams in the state that had multiple guys go and play Division I football. So there's no denying that. The thing that stands out about Tua is that he went to Alabama, a place that hasn't necessarily produced NFL talent at quarterback, and took them to a different level where the offense became not just a hand-the-ball-off, keep things in order, don't screw it up for the defense and special teams to where they were tasked to go out and win some games and asked to go out and put some big points on the scoreboard. They changed. He changed how Nick Saban approached football games in a lot of ways because of what he brought to the table, uh, and we really haven't seen that in Alabama. So I think that, in a way, is a credit to him in taking all of this talent and accidentally maximizing it. All of this chatter is really inconsequential. All of this discussion will be tossed out the window. Uh, it's all a matter of which team actually believes in Tua Tonga-Vailoa. Uh, but I think the, the grander consensus is that everyone is in agreement that the guy's talented. He can throw the football. The only real question about Tua Tonga-Vailoa at this moment in time is his injury history. And if that is something that will manifest itself at the NFL level, all right, we move on to another in-the-headlines topic. Uh, Charlie Wade, head coach for the University of Hawaii men's volleyball program, uh, has said, uh, he has said on the record that he believes that all four seniors are going to return next season or at least have the desire to return next season. The University of Hawaii as a program, as an athletic department, is in the process of moving everything from what he termed as theoretical to actual. Now, remember, the NCAA has said that they are going to grant relief in terms of eligibility, uh, but you have now a situation where the NCAA is basically saying, all right, we're going to give you relief, but now it's up to the institutions to figure out what this is going to look like and to figure out how to apply the relief that we are providing. And so you have in instances of even Power Five conference programs that you would never consider to be in danger of being cash-strapped, who are saying, you know what? Uh, we appreciate the NCAA uh, providing this option for us, but we're not going to take advantage of it. Barry Alvarez uh, at Wisconsin, the athletics director, said that the Badgers program will not utilize the NCAA's uh, relief for an extra season for spring seniors. And a lot of this comes down to economics, logistics, and those two different methodologies where you have Charlie Wade going, yeah, thank you, we will do that. And you have Barry Alvarez of Wisconsin, for crying out loud, saying thanks, but no thanks. 
Yeah, if you look at those two programs, you think it would be opposite, right? You, you think Wisconsin would have the wherewithal and, and really the financial means to, to go ahead and say, hey, we're going to run it back for our, our spring seniors and we're going to bring them back. We're going to figure out a way to fund those scholarships. We're going to figure out a way to make those roster limits work. We're going we're gonna to figure it out. On the other side, you would think the University of Hawaii, mid-major, a program that doesn't have the same kind of cash flow and revenue and, and just financial support from the greater community that a Wisconsin does in the Big Ten, you would figure UH would be a little bit harder pressed to try and come up with that funding. But maybe it's on a smaller scale for the University of Hawaii because you're talking about less seniors, less programs overall, a men's volleyball program that has gone to heights we haven't seen in a long, long time, including when it comes to revenue production. Maybe that has helped them make the case to the powers that be uh, in, a, in the athletic administration and even in upper campus to convince them that it is worthwhile and worth spending the money uh, if it does indeed cost a bit additional or if the program can fund it themselves. They're going to have to figure that out, right? And, and it was jarring to see the headline when it came to Wisconsin, but really when you think about it, not all that surprising. I would not be surprised if this becomes more commonplace, if more big programs don't decide to say, hey, look, we understand, but it's just not going to work out because there's, there's so much still, right? The, everything is up in the air. Even the football, see, even the fall, some of the big money-making opportunities for these institutions to fund the rest of their athletic programs are still very much a variable when it comes to calculating next year's budget, if you will, for all of these athletic programs. So there is still so much to get figured out. And for Barry Alvarez, he's just getting out ahead of it and not trying to get anybody's hopes up uh, and just basically coming out and saying that, hey, they're, they're not going to do it. And I wouldn't be surprised to see a fair amount of teams. I don't know if it'll be the majority of schools across the country, but I, I think it'll be a sizable amount of institutions who aren't going to go ahead and fund the seniors coming back for another year of eligibility. Yeah, I think you have to look at it through the lens of the fact that the spring sports season, the spring sports themselves for a program like Wisconsin, those aren't necessarily the driving force programs, right? Wisconsin is about football. Wisconsin is about hoops, primarily. And then you have the rest of the athletic department that those two sports sort of feed into. Uh, whereas at the University of Hawaii, you know, men's volleyball has become a juggernaut. Uh, and it has now ranked itself, credit to Charlie Wade uh, and this coaching staff for putting them in a position where they are now perennially national championship contenders, and they are now perennially selling out at least select dates at the Stan Sheriff Center. And so it has turned into a legitimate money-making program. Uh, and so I think the University of Hawaii is looking at this from the standpoint of, hey, look, this could be difficult. Uh, virtually impossible to pull off some of the finances that are required with this. But I think they also understand, hey, look, the importance of a sport like men's volleyball. We have a chance to make competitive history in that sport. Uh, and so I think the the priorities are different there, right? The, the priorities for the University of Hawaii as it pertains to these spring sports is different from the University of Wisconsin. Uh, but we still in both cases are introduced to uh, just the challenges financially of getting this thing that the NCAA has given them a chance to take advantage of getting it done. And I think you're right. We're going to see a lot of other institutions who are going to ultimately decide, Hey, look, we'd love to do this for poetic reasons for our student athletes. But at the end of the day, uh, there's just a broader picture to tend to. All right, moving on. This is just uh, something that I was thinking about because, you know, when you're in quarantine, weird thoughts go through your head. You have so much downtime, right? Uh, you're watching television. You're trying to keep up to date on current events. 
uh, and Dr. Anthony Fauci. Uh, he is saying that handshakes should be avoided long-term. He basically said, hey, look, some of the things we know now about individual boundaries and social distancing, he says, we probably shouldn't shake hands. Uh, and so it got me thinking, if we were to do away with handshakes and thus do away with high fives, which is a version of the handshake, which sport do you think would be impacted the most by the banning of those two things? Oh, boy. Yeah, uh, Dr. Fauci's, you, you know, you've gotten to a different level of fame when you've got a bobblehead. Uh, so he, he's reached <laughs> that level. Uh, the diamond sports immediately come to mind, baseball and softball, right? We, we know baseball. Everybody's got a handshake with every single other player on the team. You see it in the dugouts after home runs. Those guys have elaborate, not just handshakes, right? These things can last like 30 seconds, a minute and a half. These are elaborate handshakes uh, on the baseball diamond. Everybody's got them. Heck, the outfielders come together. They've got their little thing after closing out a game in the ninth inning. The infielders have it. Everybody's got a handshake in softball. That diamond's close, man. You and I have covered softball games over the course of our career. The amount of times that the infielders converge in the circle, shake hands, slap hands after like every pitch, it is a lot of times. And there is a lot of high-fiving and handshaking going on. I feel like the diamond sports would be a bit of an adjustment for those athletes if we're, if we're just banning high-fives outright. I think it's the sport that we were just talking about. It's volleyball. Have you ever watched a volleyball match and it is literally every point, yeah. whether you win or lose the point. Uh, and it is just a high five fest from the beginning of the match to the end of the match. And some of those matches go five sets. You're talking about two and a half hours of constant high fiving. And so uh, to me, if you were to <laughs> ban handshakes and high fives, uh, I do think that volleyball would be the sport that would be impacted the most. I feel like basketball too, right? Everybody likes to shake hands. After a free throw, which I don't know if necessarily be, needs to be eliminated. And then there's the youth basketball thing, which I never understood. And nobody's ever been able to tell me the origin. It's when a kid fouls out and then he goes to the other bench and shakes everybody's hand before he goes and sits down. Why? Yeah, what I never is the point that. of that? Like, That's I, a really good I, I, question. I never understood why we do that. I think it's completely unnecessary because we shake hands after the game anyway. The kids shake hands after the game. There's good sportsmanship there. It's like, hey, you had five fouls, like you were the rough kid or something, <laughs> and you need to go apologize to the other team. So uh, Dr. Fauci might be saving us a, uh, some wasted time, in my opinion. All right, we're going to get to our uh, talk with Mark Rolfing. Uh, nobody better to talk about golf with than this guy of the Golf Channel and NBC, a Maui resident. Uh, he loves this place, is passionate about the sport. I mean, heck, his last name rhymes with golfing. So you know he's the guy to turn to on this subject. Uh, so let's go ahead and uh, hit that. We'll have our best and worst at the conclusion of this talk. First off, thanks so much for uh, making some time to talk with us. Uh, always appreciate when we have a chance to chat with you. Of course, uh, usually it's under very different circumstances. So I guess the first question has to be, how has the quarantine treated you? What have you been doing? Well, let me see here. I am on the 17th hole at the Bay Course with the magnificent Pacific Ocean behind me and whales jumping. And I have my own two little... Uh, two-hole golf course to myself where I can wander around and catch fish and it's a pretty good place to self-quarantine. My doctor was pretty concerned about me because after my cancer uh, about my immune system probably is not the strongest so he really wanted to make sure that I was totally self-quarantining and I have I haven't gone out at all. Matter of fact my battery on my truck 
I found it was dead about two weeks ago, and I still haven't even fixed it yet because no need. <laughs> yeah, I'm worried about some of my vehicles uh, getting started when all of this is done because I haven't really uh, revved them up or had any need or purpose to. Uh, when did this sort of, the realization of this, when did it hit? When did you realize like, oh, this is, this is for real. I better heed my doctor's warnings and concerns. Well, it's interesting. Um, you know, I was working at the Players' Championship, um, and it was the first time that Michelle Wee and I were on together. You talk about the world coming around, um, and she is pregnant, as you know. Uh, and as the Players' Week sort of unfolded and we started seeing things happening like the NBA canceling uh, part of its season and things like that, we started getting worried. And the more she talked about how she wanted to go home and she was concerned because of her pregnancy and everything else, the more I started realizing, well, you know, I'm no spring chicken. And uh, after the cancer bout, I, I better at least call my doctor and see what he says. Now, on Tuesday and Wednesday at Players' Championship Week, we were still fully intending on working the entire week. Um, it wasn't until Thursday morning that it really started to hit me as to what was happening. And after Disney World and, and Universal closed down there in Orlando, uh, it, it was pretty clear that this was a dire situation and uh, we ought to get out of there. So I, I ended up uh, leaving on Saturday that week and uh, I've been real serious about it ever since. Yeah, just kind of going back to that week, Mark, and everything kind of unfolded and, and seemed to evolve at warp speed uh, just how surreal was that being at the players and, and getting that first round in and all of a sudden the plug being pulled and, and everything just being put on hold you're exactly right Jordan it was very surreal and I'll, I'll recount what happened on Thursday morning because I was on live from the players um, and the show began at nine o'clock eastern so we had a six thirty meeting and uh, it was Thursday morning play was on uh, the the players were teeing off and the fans were were coming in the gates. They were flooding in the gates. And um, I remember seeing the rundown of the show, and the first topic um, that we were going to talk about was whether or not it was a good idea for Brooks Kepka to go out and see Butch Harmon, uh, his old coach in Las Vegas, early in the week. And I said, you guys, we can't be talking about that on the top of the show. We have a national pandemic occurring here. I really feel like we need to address this situation. And there were no sort of big bosses around or, or people looking at it from 35,000 feet. It was just the production people and everybody. And so they pretty soon started making calls and they said, um, okay, yeah, you're right. We better talk about it. Let's be careful what we say. You know, we don't want to speculate right now. The players is going on, but I knew that morning, um, I really felt that that was going to be the final round. I thought they actually might stop in the middle of it. Um, I was concerned about why would they try to complete an entire round and then wipe it out? That didn't make much sense to me. But uh, that was the day, Jordan, really, that I, I realized what was going on. Yeah, it's been crazy since then. What's the sense been around the tour uh, in the aftermath? How are guys staying sharp, you know, with a lot of courses across the country, especially here in Hawaii, obviously? basically being shut down uh, to any use. Uh, how are the guys uh, around the tour staying, staying in shape, uh, keeping their game sharp, of course, not knowing when we may get back to, to actual tournament golf? You know, there's a lot of different philosophies. There's more than I thought, Jordan, that are not touching a club. Bryson DeChambeau didn't touch a club for a long time. Brooks Kepka went three weeks. I, I, I'll bet McElroy hasn't done much at all. On the other hand, you've got some players, I'm sure, that are practicing. I'll tell you what they are honing 
is their social media skills. It's pretty hysterical, um, you know, going on social media now and, and seeing some of these guys and what they're doing and what they're talking about. And uh, it's been kind of fun. But the, the break came at a really good time for a few players. There are some I don't think it'll benefit. Uh, it's certainly nothing is nearly as important as the overall health of, of the people of the world. But um, it couldn't have come at a better time for Tiger Woods as far as I'm concerned. Well, you mentioned social media, and, and uh, you know, we're probably going to veer in all kinds of different directions here with this conversation. But uh, one of the funnier things that I've seen, and this actually goes back to prior to this whole quarantine deal, uh, but Max Homa, who has kind of made it a thing on Instagram and Twitter uh, and other forms of social media platforms uh, to critique and I use air quotes there, more like criticize, almost mock and make fun of the swings of some of the people that ask him for feedback. And they get a kick out of Max Homa just kind of busting their chops a little bit. It's really become a fun thing on social media. Yeah, it really has. You know, if you think about it, you guys are both a little too young to remember what golf was like when I actually even started my career, which was over 30 years ago. Uh, it was really only a participant sport. If you weren't playing the game, um, you know, there just was not that much interest as a spectator, as a fan. Certain tournaments, the Masters and the U.S. Open in those tournaments were highly popular, but you really felt like back then you had to be a participant. And now uh, the fans of golf uh, and the spectators have become active participants in the game, just like they have in other sports. And social media has allowed them to do that. And so they're having a blast with it. And it seems like the more they get roasted by Max Homa, the more they love it. And he is brilliant. I, I think some of his swing analysis is just phenomenal. It's been fun to watch. Yeah, no, it really is. Uh, you mentioned some of the tournaments, and obviously the, the headline stories have revolved around uh, golf's major tournaments. Uh, the British Open was canceled for the first time since World War II. The Masters postponed to November. That's going to be interesting, right? A holiday season tradition like no other, the Masters. PGA Championship moved to August. U.S. Open currently uh, postponed to September. Obviously, all of that stuff is to be determined as far as whether or not it's actually going to be played out. Uh, but what do you think about this shuffling of the schedule, especially as it pertains to the major tournament events? I think it's a wish list right now, Kanoa. I, I really don't see any competitive golf in the summertime, especially in California, the PGA Championship first week in August. I think that would be a huge stretch. Um, golf is an interesting sport. When you take a look at it, um, I think golf might adapt to having no spectators almost better than any other sport. Uh, you, you would need patrons at Augusta to give it the feel, obviously, but you could have fanless golf tournaments and be pretty successful uh, where that would be more difficult. I think with some of the other sports, on the other hand, it is way more difficult to stage a golf tournament than any other sport. It takes so many more people. It takes enormous gatherings of people just to actually put on a golf tournament. Uh, it's by far the hardest of any sport uh, to actually stage. Just look at the size of the playing field. Your basketball court is, is what, Jordan, you would know, 94 by 50 feet maybe or something like that, and, mm -hmm. and plantation course is 450 acres. But the thing, the thing that people don't understand about golf is the complication of the scoring. In, in the NBA, in baseball, in football, you have two teams and one ball and one score. And the simplicity of keeping the score is obvious. It's, it's not hard. In golf, 
typical golf tournament, you have 156 players, 156 balls, and 156 scores. No timeouts, no stoppage of play. It just takes a massive amount of people to only perform one function, and that is to keep the scores. And, of course, I would imagine, Mark, especially with your background on the television side, for the PGA to get back to tournament golf, I would imagine it would involve a television viewership, right? I don't know if it's worth it for them to go out and play tournaments where they can't get it on television. As you point out, it just exasperates the the amount of people that have to be involved at these tournaments, and I don't think they can quarantine at one site. I mean, the, the tour bounces around not just the continent but around the globe at times, and so that – that aspect of it, I mean, you may be able to keep fans out from these tournaments, but, but just the, the nature of televising these events as well, does that add to the, to the difficulty of it, even if you can send guys out in singles or something like that to, to, to maintain the social distancing of the players themselves? Well, you, you do, Jordan. Um, golf is by far the most complex and difficult of any sport to televise. It's really not even close when you think about it. If you go into an arena um, – even a big NFL game, let's say in a stadium, you basically have fixed camera positions, again, in a very confined area. Area football game, you've got a field that's 100 yards long. It's got lines on it. You know where the first down markers are. You know all this stuff. On a 450-acre playing field where you have to be able to show a golf ball no matter where that ball ends up. It could be at the bottom of a gulch. It could be in a bunker. It could be in the hole. It could be a lot of places. Uh, I would say your typical NBA game or baseball, Major League Baseball game, is probably going to have 12 to 15 cameras covering that, uh, whereas a golf tournament will have 100, in some cases maybe even more, spread out all over. Um, It also takes a very unique type of skill to televise golf. For a cameraman following a golf ball that's going 180 miles an hour through a gray sky, you know, off a club head where, where you don't know how the guy hit it. You've got to try and anticipate it. Um, it's a very, very complicated thing to televise. Now, having said that, the financial structure of the PGA Golf Tour is so dependent on TV. The rights fees from the networks are such a major portion of the overall revenue. The local sponsors just aren't as big as they are in the NFL where teams can sell local sponsorships and huge season ticket packages and all that kind of stuff. So the proportion of TV money is gigantic in golf, and therefore it would not work at all in any shape or form without the TV. With all that being said, when when we're talking about staging full tournaments, uh, do you see the possibility of some of these special events? Uh, Like it's been rumored where, hey, Tiger and Phil are going to go play uh, a match play event and, and a single handheld camera is going to follow them around for 18 holes or something like that. Do, do you see that as something that could come before we get back to the full-blown tournament television coverage? Maybe, maybe. I don't really see any benefit to it. I certainly don't think we'll ever see another Tiger Phil where they're playing for $9 million of somebody else's money. Uh, the only reason I could see something like that happening if it was philanthropic, if they were having a COVID uh, relief fund uh, fundraiser or something like that. I, but I, I don't think so. I, I think really what they're going to have to do is figure out whether or not they can have limited field events, smaller events, make sense in the overall stage. So so think about this one already. The Century Tournament of Champions is not going to have a field. We know that. We are eight months away from that tournament, yet I can almost assure you 
nobody will be in that field. And the reason they won't be is we won't have tournament winners between now and then. We will have a handful, you know, 10 maybe or 12. We can't have a tournament of that size. So the question is, how do they fill in the field? And the complication there is it's such a big tournament. There are so many world ranking points. There's so much prize money, FedEx Cup points, you name it, that if you just arbitrarily start putting guys into that field, maybe based on world rankings or based on if they won a tournament last year, let's say, or something, you're now giving them not only a chance to play in the tournament, but you're giving them an edge on other players for these world ranking points and all that stuff. And it's going to have a domino effect of impact on the world of golf. So that's really going to have to be thought through. And that's only one tournament, and that one's still eight months away, but it's going to be an issue. You mentioned Kapalua is your backyard in essence, and so I know that that subject hits very close to home for you, and, and that is a conundrum. What do you anticipate the more realistic, feasible contingency plan being then with respect to the Century Tournament of Champions? You know, there's a couple of things. The, the, the handle of winners only, I think, is a good one. I really like it. It makes it a unique event. Uh, I would like to preserve winners only. I, I truly believe that the thing to do here, Kanoa, is to look um, not only short term as to what to do in eight months, but what to do long term. And I think going away from winners only would be a mistake. Uh, you could say, look, anybody that gets in the tour championship, the top 30 ought to get in Kapala or whatever. But, but I think preserving the winners only is important. One of the reasons I do is long term, I'm pretty certain there's going to be a world tour. We are starting to work our way toward that in golf. Uh, Greg Norman had the idea 25 years ago. He was ahead of his time. He didn't go about it the right way, but it was the right idea. I think there will be a world tour. And I think in that world tour, there will be a tournament of champions that has winners from all the tournaments around the world, which would probably be a 50, 60, 70 man field, let's say. And is there a better place in the world? And maybe I'm biased, <laughs> which I guess I probably am for sure. <laughs> But would there be a better place in the world to do it in Hawaii, on Maui, at Kapalua, right here? Uh, and I, I could see that coming. I really could. That would be one of the first world events that would really be feasible, I think. And um, I, I would hate to get away from winners only if it would impact your ability to do something like that down the line. So you're suggesting that with that long game in mind, it would be potentially in the best interest of the Century Tournament of Champions in this upcoming iteration to have an abridged field of just winners or, you know, dare we say, even if it gets to the point where you'd almost rather see it uh, eliminated for this edition, maybe what, what, what are some of the options there? You know, I think there'll be a lot of factors that are going to determine whether you can actually play it or not. What the travel situation coming to Hawaii is, you know, certainly players from Europe and Asia, like if, if they couldn't play because of travel restrictions or whatever, again, how could you actually stage a tournament where, where they weren't allowed to play? So uh, I just would hate to see the decision made in a vacuum as to what to do one time only for this January without thinking of the big picture. The other thing is um, I think now is the time for, a for asking what you want for. If you've got a good sponsor that's in for 10 more years like Century, and if you've got a great site like Kapalu and Maui uh, and a place where the players like to come, um, you're, you're holding some pretty good cards. And I think whatever would benefit this tournament long term, whatever the, 
the Maui Visitors Bureau and the Hawaii Tourism Authority and the Ritz-Carlton Kapalua and all the people that are so involved, what would be the best thing for them? Would it be better to play a week later? Maybe and get off that Christmas date a little bit. Um, certainly it would be for the hotel and the island in general, um, I, I think, you know, to move back a week. I think it'd be better for the players. Everybody wants a Christmas holiday, just like um, like anybody else. Uh, so I, I don't know. I think the most important thing is get get Century and the PGA Tour and, and Coppola folks and Troon folks and everybody together and just say, let's think short term, but let's also keep long term. What do we really want here? Yeah, I think that's really interesting and kind of taking this as an opportunity to really evaluate what the future looks like while we've got a little bit of downtime and some uncertainty in the short term. Uh, I was kind of curious to get your take, Mark, on, on a pretty macro level and uh, idea when it comes to sports tourism, as you point out, and, and how big the Tournament of Champions is for this island, for the particular uh, side of the island in West Maui. I mean, we're, we're hearing things, right, whether it's Augusta, uh, missing out on the Masters potentially this year, Omaha in the College World Series, Williamsport, you go down down the list, and then West Maui kind of fits into that bill, right, with the six-week span between the Maui Invitational, which, which you've got a lot of roots with, and then, of course, the, the Tournament of Champions going from Thanksgiving on into the new year. Uh, just the, the level of importance to get it right once we get back to it because of the, the economic boon that, that is associated with, with bringing these high-profile events to a small-town place such as West Maui. Yeah, uh, you know, the impact of not having a tournament, Jordan, would be just, uh, it would be nearly catastrophic here in a lot of ways. Um, not the least of which the money that's raised for charity. You know, the numbers that, that are raised on Maui don't even come close to sniffing what they do in Dallas or L.A. or New York or places like that. But still, it's very, very important money. And, and um, you know, it's been going on here for 35 years, and I can't imagine what some of these um, organizations would do if they lost their funding that comes from that tournament. Um, there's a lot of jobs association associated with vendors, uh, things like that. But uh, the, the philanthropic part of golf is pretty amazing. I saw a stat the other day, golf generates more charitable dollars as an organization, as a game than all the other major sports combined. They have raised, the PJ Tour alone has raised over a billion dollars in the last 10 years for charities, a billion. Uh, and to lose that money, to have that sort of taken out of the um, philanthropic marketplace, I think would be devastating. So uh, we've got to try to do something. And I'm starting to hear other tournaments that are, they're going to do things that, that um, you know, like potentially virtual tournaments and have charitable uh initiatives going on during their week even though they're not necessarily playing golf um but I, you know i hope eight months from now we are ready to go and ready to play um it, there may not be as many players to know your job may be easier on that first tee um but it would actually make televising tougher if you if you think about it we have a hard enough time on tv with 35 or 36 players in the field if you only had 20 you know, let's say 18 or 20 guys, wow, they would be all crammed together. It'd be like a little, you know, a horse race, a sprint race around the track. Yeah, it, it, it's really interesting. I think a great point when it comes to the, the charitable side of this and the impact. And I was curious as well, Mark, to kind of ask you, and I know you, you do a lot with just the promotion of golf, not necessarily on the, the professional tournament side, but just the promotion of the industry here in Hawaii 
and elsewhere. Uh, what's the, the state of the golf industry and, and how does it bounce back with, as you pointed out, uh, you know, the closures all over the place? It's a very fragile industry anyway, Jordan. It was fragile before we got into this pandemic, and um, it's going to be even more fragile coming out. I really worry about municipal golf and the sustainability of municipal golf. Um, we only have one public course here, municipal course on Maui, which is Waihu, and I think that one will be okay. But Honolulu, for example, has six that are all closed down right now, and the city's very financially strapped over there. I, I don't see... Uh, that six package of courses um, looking the same a year from now. Uh, I, I think it'll be different. Um, the game has had some some setbacks, uh, and and this is not going to help. But I look at chaos sometimes as creating opportunities, and and maybe now is the time for us to really get serious about a few things. If you think about it, Jordan, the golf business itself has three problems. There's Really, everything can fall into one of three categories. The first one is the game is too difficult for the average player, for the beginning golfer. It's, it's just a very difficult game, and it tends to push people away that are absolute beginners. The second is it takes too long, and the third is it costs too much. And now, to me, is the time to look at those three issues and figure out long-term how are we going to deal with them. It's interesting, before the golf courses closed, they were instituting some social distancing um, type initiatives that were, um, that were pretty cool. Um, USGA allowed people to take balls out of the bunkers uh, and count it ground under repair and, and not even play the sand shot. Just put it outside, chip it on, go on your merry way. The holes were raised so that if your ball struck the cup, it was considered having been holed out. One of the things that we saw from that is the rounds themselves were taking on an average almost an hour less, an hour less than it used to take to play a round of golf, which is a really good thing. I'm not saying we ought to change the rules that way, but we ought to look at that and say, hey, we just proved that we could speed up the game. Now let's get serious about it. The other is, you know, the cost of the game. We Everybody thinks – that for a golf course to be really good, it's got to look like Augusta National would have looked this week for the Masters. That is not the case at all. And as a matter of fact, the greener it is and the lusher it is, the more difficult it is for the average player to play. Over in Great Britain and Scotland, where the courses are basically brown because they don't have the water and the irrigation system, those courses are fine. Everybody loves them. Nobody complains about St. Andrews not looking like Augusta National. But more importantly, you play a lot faster because the ball goes a lot farther. It rolls uh, a mile over there, and they shoot lower scores. So the lower scores you shoot, the more fun you're going to have, and you're going to play faster. And I think maybe this little pause in the game will cause everybody in the industry to just step back and say, now's the time for us to change the way we're doing things. I am all for being able to take my ball out of the trap. Like that is a rule I want to <laughs> see me up. tomorrow. That would be fantastic. Uh, you are in the media business and the media business is based upon the foundation of content. At a time like this, your association with the Golf Channel and NBC, what have been some of the discussions and conversations about how to move forward in this interim of actual golf action as far as programming and content are concerned? Well, it's interesting, you know, for my network in particular, as you can well imagine, everything was based on the Olympics. Uh, if you take a look at the 
the schedule and how that impacts my company, uh, Comcast, that I work for. Uh, we had seven networks that were televising the Olympics over a two and a half week period, 24 hours a day. Uh, it wasn't just NBC, it was NBC Sports Network, it was MSNBC, it was CNBC, it was Golf Channel, Bravo, you name it. Um, so everything was focused on that and, and all the trials and all the preliminary events that, that went up to the Olympics. So there was no plan, uh, literally at all, to have sort of adjacent golf programming uh, going along with the golf tournaments because the Olympics were going to be overwhelming. So our dilemma is even worse than CBS and Fox. And I think what you're going to start seeing now um, is a lot of golf programming. Um, the, the ratings on the old tournaments, golfers are a unique group. They just love watching those old masters. Uh, and as a matter of fact, the, the Players' Championship aired the final round from last year on the Sunday after this year's player. It drew a million people. It outrated almost every live golf tournament that had been on this year, a replay of last year when they knew Rory McIlroy had won. Um, so you're going to start seeing more and more of the golf now, which we wouldn't have been able to do because of the Olympics, but now that, that opportunity is there. What about you personally? What are you going to be involved with? Do they have you doing some work from your home uh, like we're seeing on some other platforms? Yeah, I'm going to start doing a little bit of what you guys are doing. I'm not actually going to have a podcast, but we have a lot of requests, and um, and I'm, I'm going to start getting out there a little bit, and I'm going to start contributing to Golf Central with some feature kind of stuff uh, that I'm actually going to do from my lanai, and I most likely will delve into the things that we just talked about, golf course maintenance. So, you know, it's amazing to me. I watch the workers out here every day mowing the greens and, and the course has never been in better shape. You can't find a divot anywhere out there right now, uh, which is too bad, really. But um, so we'll, we'll be doing a lot of that. And then once this schedule gets set, um, I pretty much plan on working, um, I, I would say, almost every week. The way I kind of see it unfolding, Kanoa, is um, I think it's probably going to be July, August, somewhere in there that we'll start easing our way back into some competitive golf and, and I could see sort of the beginning of September as a real run of every week big golf tournaments you would start with something like FedEx Cup playoffs now how do you qualify for the FedEx Cup playoffs if you haven't been playing I don't know that's another dilemma um, but I could see the FedEx Cup playoffs the U.S. Open is going to be in September the Ryder Cup is going to be in September uh, I think it'll be a fantastic fall and winter for golf, and I'm going to pretty much plan on being out of here and working almost every week. No, it's, uh, it's going to be hopefully sooner rather than later. Uh, we're, we're looking forward to that. To kind of circle back, Mark, uh, you know, you mentioned you were working on the Players' Championship with Michelle Wee, uh, a Hawaii native. Uh, what, what have you made of her foray here into the, the broadcasting side of the game? Uh, I, I was – Pretty excited to see her. I thought she did a great job, but uh, kind of sitting next to her. What did you think of Michelle now uh, in this stage of her career? Well, I, I, I just thought she was phenomenal. Um, you know, I, I've known her in so many different lights over the years since she was nine years old, I guess. And it was, it was just amazing. It was surreal in a lot of ways to actually be up there with her as an analyst. And uh, I'll tell you what I like, Jordan, more than anything else was her attitude. She was at every production meeting. She was prepared. 
uh, I thought she made some brilliant points. She wasn't really talking from a women's golf standpoint or an LPGA point of view. She was looking at things um, as a golf analyst. And um, I just thought she did a really, really good job. I think she's at a crossroads in her career. She still wants to play competitively. Um, and, and I think she will. Uh, but I, I wouldn't think it's going to be long before she is is pretty much doing TV full-time. I think she's got a great future ahead of her, especially now with being a mom. Yeah, that, that is terrific. And, of course, I can't get out of here without, uh, without a Tiger question. You mentioned the, the break came, at least for him, to maybe physically at, at a pretty good time. If we do get into a fall swing, some of the colder months perhaps, I know in maybe some more warm weather climates if we do get a, uh, a Masters in November. But, uh, you know, he's not getting any younger. Uh, I, I'm sure he will admit that. Uh, how does this, you think, sway his career in, in the next 18 months or so? With as you mentioned, so much up in the air. Once we'll get, I back think that's what he's got. George is an 18 month view of it. Um, he was not feeling well at all physically. We saw him withdraw from three tournaments in a row, uh, right, right uh, in front of the closing down of the PGA Tour. Um, he would not have been on the Olympic team. This gives him a chance, I think, to get on that Olympic team, which I know is a big goal of his. Uh, but I actually think condensing the schedule and having the majors closer together uh, would be good for him because I'm pretty sure what he will do is just play almost nothing else. I wouldn't be surprised to see him skip some of the FedEx Cup playoffs. Uh, he would definitely play the Ryder Cup. But, um, I, you know, I think he's got – Another couple of years ahead of him, I think he will go hard at it. Um, and I think that I just think this little break is going to re-energize him. You can tell he's starting to get itchy um, and starting to get anxious to get back out there. I didn't see that uh, earlier this year. Uh, you know, it was like, uh, you know, and the physical problems, it's hard to tell really how bad they were. But he didn't have an enthusiasm level, um, you know, that I thought was going to be necessary for him to really play well, you know, in, a, in what was going to be a hard, long season here. And I think this is, this is going to be a big benefit for him. Well, speaking of health, you, my friend, are a survivor of stage four salivary gland cancer, and you look and sound fantastic. Um, how much does that experience still contribute to your everyday life, your everyday approach to life? It's everything. I, I don't wake up in the morning without pinching myself and saying, wow, I'm still here. Uh, the diagnosis was very dire. Um, you know, they gave me about a 5% chance. Uh, it was a very, very rare cancer. Um, but, you know, I'm just so blessed to have survived it. I don't know why me. I think about that every day, like what, why me and why not other people? Uh, but what's really important now is to pay it back for me. Uh, and to really give people, um, you know, the thought that there is hope. And it doesn't have to be regarding cancer or even your health. When it, when it's something like this um, COVID crisis that we're going through, there is always hope. And, and as long as we have that and we should have that, we're going to get through all this. Uh, so um, the, the cancer experience still is the biggest part of my life. It really has affected me. I think it's actually made me a better golf analyst. Um, I'm more to the point now. I, I think I'm a little more direct. Um, I, I look at things and, and think of them differently than I did before. Um, it's just an amazing experience. And people constantly are saying to me, wow, that must have been horrible. I don't know. If I, if I had it to do over again, I think I might just do the same thing. 
it really was an incredible experience for me. Well, you project this this incredible passion for golf, uh, just this incredible friendly and, and, and social demeanor. You're welcoming to just about every individual who uh, you are around and who is uh, within your sphere. Uh, and we can't thank you enough. I have one last very serious question to ask before we let you go. Uh, how many times in your life has it been pointed out that your last name rhymes with golfing? Well, w way too many. Um, you know, it's a lot, but it's actually pretty good. And, and I pretty much tell people that my name is golfing, except trade out the R. Um, so yeah, it's, I don't know. I, you know, the golf thing, uh, how I came into that, I don't know. I didn't really, um, play a whole lot of junior golf as a kid. And I was into football and basketball, like everybody else back in Illinois, going, going to high school. And all of a sudden I started playing golf and, um, got pretty good, fairly fast. And, um, it's just been a miracle for me. Um, you know, pretty much all the things that have happened to me great in my life have uh, been because of the game of golf. I mean, imagine if your last name was Rasketball. It could have all been different for you, Mark. It could have all been different. <laughs> I think different. I would have had to change it. <laughs> uh, Mark, we can't thank you enough. You have always been wonderful to us. And, and every time we talk to you, it is uh, just an incredible experience. So thank you, sir. Great. Thanks to you, Kanoa and Jordan, and, and uh, good luck with your uh, show going forward here. I know it's going to be fabulous. I'll be watching intently, and let's do this again. All right. Once again, big thanks to Mark Rolfing for jumping on with us. He was our first official guest of the podcast era of this show, Jordan. That's big. I feel like that's big, and I, I feel like, and he might have been just doing this to lift our spirits and be the nice guy that he is, but uh, he seemed excited about being the first guest when we talked to him prior to recording that interview. All right. Well, uh, before we go, we like to end the show with our best and worst. Uh, it can be pretty much anything, but let's go bad news before the good news. So what's your worst here for this episode, Jordan? All right. Okay. We'll start with the worst. Uh, did you catch any of the horse debut on ESPN? I did. Sunday. I saw the, the Trey Young and Chauncey Billups portion, or at least a portion of that portion mm -hmm. of the horse broadcast. And, uh, yeah, man, it wasn't uh, exactly riveting or uh, <laughs> or, or uh, high production quality television. I mean, you're not expecting it to look like the Super Bowl for sure, uh, but it was basically like a bad YouTube video. Exactly. So that's where I'm going with my worst. I, I'm not going to hate on them for putting on the competition. Hey, we're all starved for that. Uh, and I get it. We're not going to have high-level cameras or anything like that. Heck, they had like nephews and kids out there holding phone cameras and, and getting that footage. Uh, so that was understandable. We, we figured it was going to be a little like that. Um, but Trey Young is my worst because his wireless carrier or his Wi-Fi, whatever it is, was by far of the eight competitors the worst. It's like, Trey, come on, man. Not on top of that, that he lost. And he's supposed to be the sharpshooter, right? Chauncey got him. Chalk one up for the old guys. Uh, but his, his Wi-Fi was by far the worst. Uh, so that was the worst thing for me this weekend. All right, my worst is, this isn't a sports-related thing, but the uh, Illinois mayor uh, ordered police to crack down on parties and gatherings, and they just happened to find his wife at one of them. That's right, Brant Walker, <laughs> the mayor of Alton, Illinois, uh, says that he's embarrassed after police broke up a gathering at Hiram's Tavern. That's got to be the hangout in downtown Alton. And guess who was among those in attendance? His wife. Yes, police being asked to enforce stay-at-home directives 
And uh, man, his wife was caught breaking the rules. And that's just a bit of a shameful situation from a man, Brant Walker. If any place, uh, if the town centers around a place called a tavern, <laughs> we're talking, we're talking small town America. Uh, and that, that word got out quick, I'm sure, about Mrs. Walker. So, yeah, come on, Mayor. We got, we got, we got to keep. You got to keep order at home first before you can start dictating to the rest of the municipality there. All right, what's your best? Uh, my best. It was Sunday. It was supposed to be Sunday at the Masters, and so they replayed last year's final round. Tiger's triumphant number 15 when it came to major championships, his fifth green jacket. Uh, and not only did they replay the final round, uh, but they had Jim Nance interview Tiger. Uh, and I thought that was pretty cool. It was a little clunky at times. Don't, don't get me wrong. But just seeing and listening to Tiger kind of describe and walk you through a lot of the big moments uh, as that round unfolded and, and him sharing what was going through his mind on 18 and then embracing his children and his mother after coming off of the 18th green, clinching that Masters tournament. It was pretty cool. It, it really was. And we, uh, we got to, to hear some insight from Tiger. Uh, he also, like over his shoulder, had like 20 putters or something on the wall that he was in in some place in his house. I don't know how many clubs he's just got lying around, but if he wants to spare one of those high-priced putters, uh, he can send one my way. Yeah, I guess he has the hookups on golf gear. Uh, who would have so. thought? Who would have thought? Yeah, um, that was really cool, by the way. Uh, I agree with you there. My best is what we have seen here in lieu of live sporting events. Sportscasters announcing everyday mundane activities <laughs> going on around their house on social media. You had Joe Buck, who I think was one of the guys at the forefront of this movement, uh, and he actually got into the bit where he was accepting videos from people and would voice them over and send them back out uh, via social media, asking them uh, if he does provide the voiceover work uh, just to make like a small donation to a charity here during the quarantine time. That was really, really cool and really funny stuff uh, if you follow him. Uh, and also Josh Lewin among the sportscasters who have uh, participated uh, in this endeavor. He's the UCLA football and basketball play-by-play announcer. Uh, and he's been doing some great stuff. Just him by himself at times in his house. I mean, really funny stuff, including like stirring in uh, lemonade, you know, like the powder lemonade. He just puts it in the water and stirs it up and uh, unloading the dishwasher. And I mean, what he's applying as far as like his sportscaster worksmanship. Uh, is fantastic, really funny. And the, the creativity that has uh, come out of this quarantine and pandemic period uh, is something that uh, we will remember for some time, I think. It's always good when the sportscasters put their powers and use it for good. So it's, right. it's nice to see. All right. Um, that was a fun one. Thanks once again to Mark Rolfin for joining us. If you have any comments or questions or topic ideas, hit us up on Twitter. I am at Kanoa Leahy. Jordan is at Jordan Helly. Have a good one, my man. I'll talk to you again soon. Take care, buddy.